Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Life After God. My name is Ryan Bell, and I'm your host. This is episode 89. It's been a little while. The last episode was in February, just before the coronavirus outbreak. And, well, you know the rest. Things have been a little crazy for all of us. But I'm here today with a new episode, as well as a few updates, just to help us all catch up a little. So for starters, how the heck are you? This has been unlike anything any of us have experienced or lived through, unless you're 102 years old. Actually, my friend Sid has a great aunt who is old enough to have vague memories of the 1918 flu epidemic, but I'm guessing for the rest of us, this is a really new experience, and I'm curious how you're holding up. I'd love to hear from you. Please, you can write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Let me know how you've been doing, how you've been keeping yourself grounded during this chaotic time, and what your biggest challenges have been. Perhaps we can work these insights into a future episode of the podcast. For my part, uh, we're good. We're still working. Um, Brooke and I have been able to keep our jobs and stay working. We're healthy. Our families are healthy. Uh, My kids are doing well. And so we're really grateful. And we feel very fortunate uh, because we know um, how challenging this has been. And I'm sure many of you are are really uh, in the throes of of uncertainty and and some chaos in your lives. And uh, I really want to wish you the best and uh, reach out anytime. I would love to hear how you're doing. Um, I work at the Secular Student Alliance, as most of you know, and we started working from home on March 16th. Uh, We've had some incredible online events during that time as we've sort of pivoted from campus-based events, which is our bread and butter, to um, dealing with this this, uh, pandemic. And so we've started doing online events about once a week. Perhaps you've seen some of them. I actually live-streamed one of them to the Life After God Facebook page, which if you are not following, you should. Just go to facebook.com slash Our Life After God and follow us there, and you can keep track of all the stuff that we're doing. Um, I did have one event that we streamed there about community in times of crisis. And on top of that, our entire SSA conference is moving online, which means you can participate for free. One of the keynote speakers is a journalist and author by the name of Catherine Stewart. Her newest book is called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Rise of Religious Nationalism. I've spent this weekend reading the book, and it is a wild ride, let me tell you. I was aware of many of the things that she shares in the book, but my knowledge only scratched the surface. The Christian nationalists that she writes about are only getting stronger, it seems, and especially under the current administration. Uh, I'm going to be speaking to Catherine for this podcast prior to the SSA conference, 
Uh, so you'll have two opportunities to hear from her. And so I'm really looking forward to that. That should be coming up in just a few weeks. Um, there are another, a number of other plans that I've been working on during the past two and a half months since our lives got turned upside down. I don't have time to share all of that right now, but if you're a member of the Life After God community on Patreon and a member of the Facebook group, I'll be sharing more this week there. To join, all you have to do is become a patron of the show at the $5 per month level or above, and you can join the conversation that's happening between episodes and uh, also know that you're helping to support the show and keep it free for everyone that wants to, to hear it. Uh, it'll always be free to download and free to listen to. Today on the show, I'm going to be talking to Justin Clark. I've only met Justin virtually, but I've been following him on Instagram and Twitter for a couple of years now, and I've been intrigued by the way he expresses his atheism and secular humanism in political ways via socialism. He's an avid reader, as you'll hear. This is a pretty different episode for Life After God. I don't think we've ever done anything quite like this. Justin and I have a lot in common in the way we think about the politics of humanism, and I hope you're challenged and inspired to do more thinking and reading of your own. And of course, I'd always love to hear what you think. You can write to me anytime at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Of course, I'd love it if you'd follow the show on social media and rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Well, enough about all of that. Let's get to my conversation with Justin Clark. Hey, Justin. Great to have you on the uh, Life After God podcast. Thank you for having me on, Ryan. I have, I have loved your work for a very, very long time, so I feel very privileged to be able to be on the show. Yeah, this is fun. And I've had a, a hard time, as I mentioned in the intro, kind of getting myself uh, sort of reorganized to do the podcast during this um, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. I try to make most of my um, podcasts pretty evergreen so that people can go back and refer to them in the past. You know, in the future, they can go uh, check them out. But um, so anybody in the future checking this out, this is, this is recorded during our, um, our quarantine our stay-at-home uh, ordinances in our various cities. Um, it's April 24th. I'm in Pasadena, California. Where are you? I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana. Okay. And how are things there? They're much better than in sort of major areas of the country like California or New York. Um, I think we have here in the state, I think something like, oh, it's like maybe like, we, we've had like less than like, like, uh, Two to maybe two to three thousand like confirmed cases, maybe more, and then of like the total deaths, only like like six hundred and thirty or something like that. Like we, right. and you know, uh, it's been a it's been a very interesting time because like basically, I work for state government, so you know, and I work downtown, I work in government buildings and in a government building, so it was like basically uh, St. Patrick's Day was my last day in the office. And it was right. sort of like the week before we had shut the building down to the public because I work in the Indiana State Library. And then that Tuesday before we came home on the 18th, it was like, nope, we're just shutting it all down. Yeah. And I've, I've been home ever since and I'll probably be home until June-ish. Yeah. What, what uh, area of, of state government do you work in? So I, um, I work for the um, Indiana Historical Bureau, um, which is hmm. a division of the Indiana State Library. Um, my title is as um, Digital Initiatives Director. Uh, cool. I'm, a pu- I'm a public historian by profession, so, um, but I, I work on digital history, so I um, preserve Indiana-related materials, so newspapers, photographs, manuscript collections, um, and awesome. help. Thanks. Yeah, and I help libraries all across the state um, digitize their collections as well. And, and unfortunately, 
a big chunk of my job is kind of shut down because the libraries are shut down now. So, right. um, but yeah, so it's a great job. I love doing it. And, um, and I look forward to getting back into full force when, when this stuff starts to subside. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's an interesting time for, for all levels of government, you know, city, city government, state government, federal government. I mean, I think it's, uh, and hopefully we can touch on some of these things in our conversation, but I mean, it's really pointing out this crisis has pointed out, I think the, the real uh, weak weaknesses in um, our, you know, our governments, our, our um, bureaucracies and the, uh, the safety net that we supposedly have. And, um, and I think we don't really appreciate what we have until it's gone. I think, you know, having public libraries is one, in part that great, you know, historical tradition of public goods and the commons um, that I think we don't really, you know, talk about too much. You don't hear philosophers sort of philosophizing about the commons that much unless it's environmentalism, which of course is hugely important. Um, but I think we just take libraries for granted. And I think um, even when I was still a pastor, I had a really good friend that worked for the LA uh, LA downtown LA pub, uh, public library. And he said, Oh, you're a preacher. You said, I, I really feel like um, libraries are like secular churches. You know, they're in, very often the downtown public libraries of large, large or even medium sized cities are beautiful buildings, right? Some, some thoughts gone into the architecture. It's not just a warehouse for books and it's a place where knowledge is exchanged. It's not just a, again, not just a warehouse for books, but but a place where lectures happen, a place where art is displayed, uh, all sorts of really cool, um, almost like equivalent to religious institutions. Absolutely. Um, as, as I, you know, I, I was, as a little kid, I mean, I lived about a 10 minute walk from my public library. And so when I was a little kid, nine, 10, 11 years old, you know, after school, I'd go to the and spend my time reading books. And, and so I've always had an affinity for libraries and, and I do believe that they're these beautiful, vital public goods. And, and fortunately for me here in Indianapolis, we have an, an amazing um, city, county, public library system. It's wonderful. Our central branch is absolutely gorgeous. They did a huge extension onto it about 10 years ago, but the front of it's still what the original building is. Um, and it is a wonderful resource. And, and the thing that's great about um, public libraries is they're really starting to change exactly how they get things to to their, uh, their citizens. So a lot of stuff is digital now. And yeah. th that's the beautiful thing. You know, you have eBooks, you have audio books, which you can get for free. Um, you have uh, obviously the digital collections, which I work on um, that are still accessible online. So if you're doing historical research or genealogy research, you can access those materials. Um, and the beautiful thing about what those those services are and particularly in, in what I work on is that it's free to the public. This mm. isn't stuff that's put behind a paywall. You know, a lot of yeah. a lot, people don't realize is that there's actually a lot of like historically relevant material that's actually behind a paywall, whether it's newspapers or mm. journal articles and things like that. And so libraries are wonderful um, and intermediary to have the public gain access to information because we like to think everything's on the internet, but there actually isn't. And the stuff, and some of the stuff you can't get to without paying for it. So, right. so I do feel I have a very strong love for libraries as you do. Yeah. It's so, so fantastic. Um, well, I, you know, I've known of you like, so I, I feel like this is the precursor to every conversation I have on the podcast. I know of you from online, um, from following you on social media and in particular your Instagram. Yeah. Which as a, I guess as a good library employee and a public historian features lots of books. 
Um, you're constantly reading and constantly posting images of the books you're reading. And I, I personally love that because I'm, um, I don't think I'm, I w some people say I'm a voracious reader. I'm not that fast. I, I, I think I appear to be reading more books than I actually am reading. Um, and sometimes I'll start a book or I'll get the gist of it and I won't be able to finish it. But I do uh, love hearing what other people are reading, especially people that share my interests. And um, yours always overlap with something that I'm interested in and a combination of um, political theory and, and philosophy and humanism and science and all kinds of good stuff. So that's kind of what initially attracted me to having a conversation with you on the podcast. But before we get into kind of all the stuff that interests you um, in your personal life, um, outside of work, and just kind of what, what kind of makes your heart beat fast, uh, I wanted to just ask you a little bit about your background as, um, you know, as a secular person. Were you, were you raised religious like so many are and then leave, or were you raised secular? Um, I was largely raised secular. Um, I wouldn't say I was raised non-religious, but I would say I was raised secular. I had parents who were very, um, they were very open-minded and, and they were very much of the attitude that if you want to go to church, that's fine, you know, but uh, they never pushed it on us. Um, religion was never really a big thing to me when I was a kid. I always make the joke that, you know, Garfield comics and pro wrestling meant more to me than religion ever did as a yeah, kid. That makes sense. And, uh, and so, you know, it was, it was like, I wasn't, but I wasn't explicitly atheist and, 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 you know, I didn't actually know that was an option, you know, God was just sort of this thing that people talked about. I didn't really know anything about. And I found church and to this day, I, while I love churches and particularly historical churches, um, I still very, I love very much. I do find myself a little bit uncomfortable in them, um, mainly just because I, I just don't know why I just do. Um, but, uh, but, um, but yeah, but it was, I was in high school, I was a senior in high school. And I remember I was in the, the library at the high school. And I remember, um, I'm a really big fan of the musician, um, Gary Newman, you know, here in my car, I feel sick. Mo you know, it might may age me a little bit. I mean, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I love, I love his music and I was reading his Wikipedia page and I remember getting down to like the, on like public figures, those have like personal life section. Yeah. And it just said one very simple sentence. It just, Gary Newman is an atheist. And I was like, what, what is that? Hmm. And then I clicked, clicked the link and I started to read the Wikipedia page about atheism and I'm kind of reading and I realized I'm like, Oh, this is me. This hmm. is me. And, you know, because for many, many years, like I had, I had been sort of interested in, in sort of religion vaguely. And I read like a lot of the Bible when I was um, in English literature class in high school, you know, and things like that. But I, but, you know, I didn't know that like being non-religious was an option. So when I discovered that, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And this is about 2009. So we're sort of right out at the tail end of the popularity of what they call the four horsemen. Right. Um, Hitchens, Dawkins, Dennett, Harris. And it was around that time that I discovered Hitch. And so I read God is Not Great. I read Richard Dawkins. Um, and so I had a very, and in that regard, I had a very traditional path to at least for the modern context um and so that was kind of how i came to it and what um, year was that again so this is about 2009 yeah. uh 2009 10 11 somewhere around that yeah. you know my college years were super informative for me um and i remember i think it was my 19th birthday in 2009 i asked for a few books and the books that i asked for were god is not great by christopher hitchens and being in nothingness by jean paul sartre <laughs> 
And those are the two. Your parents are like, oh, is he okay? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. So like my mom is not particularly like very opinionated, but my dad is. And so I grew up with my dad who is non-religious. He's not explicitly atheist. He probably identifies more as an agnostic. Um, But, you know, he was very influenced by Kurt Vonnegut. And so I, so I grew up learning about Kurt Vonnegut and, and and my dad always said like, you'll read those books when you're, when you're age appropriate, when you're age appropriate, you know, because he's like, I can't, I I don't want to, I don't want to ruin you with them or whatever. But uh, he was, you know, but, but, um, but yeah, so it was, you know, it was around that time. And then I, and then I got into college and then I started taking philosophy courses. Um, And I was just obsessed with learning about philosophy and the history of philosophy and, sort of key figures in philosophy. Um, and, you know, and so those, all those influences were really big. I would say probably an influence that was big on me, but now I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to say it, but th- it happens for a lot of men my age at the time of my demographic that I was a huge fan of Ayn Rand. And, oh, yeah. I, and, and Ayn Rand's atheism explicitly, you know, there's a, there's a section in the Fountainhead where, they, the lead character, Howard Work, you know, someone asked him the question, like, you know, why do you build all these beautiful buildings? Because the novel, he's an architect. It's like, why do you build all these beautiful buildings? And he just says very plainly, it's because I don't believe in God. Hmm. I build these as temples to man. And like, that really stuck with me. And it still does, even though I completely disavow political ideas. Right. I like that idea of sort of like testaments to mankind, that libraries are sort of testaments, the churches yeah. of mankind. And just being exposed to explicitly atheistic ideas was a big part of um, my, my, my de- not even a deconversion, but just sort of a, a awakening of who I really was. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I think um, it's always interesting to see, you know, to track people's influences. And I, I think as, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, as I've talked to different atheists and, you know, some might describe, self-describe as skeptics or, or, or agnostics or uh, humanist and whatever their chosen label is. But I find that there's, you know, a lot of people who arrive at a non-belief in God through science. You know, for them, that was the big entryway was to, to realize that the earth wasn't created in six literal days, according to the Bible, or that evolution was in some other, you know, broader sense true, whereas their religion taught that there was a creator and um, you know, or that the science of sexuality was what busted it open for them or something like that. And, and then other people, I feel like the other large group are people that come to atheism sort of through philosophy, uh, through questions of, of um, origins, more philosophically speaking, or um, purpose or, or meaning in life or, um, you know, wrestling with those um, large kind of existential questions. So um, sounds like, you know, for you, it was much more through philosophy and the humanities that you sort of re- grappled with the, the question of your sort of identity and, and what you would call yourself. Absolutely. Um, yeah, philosophy was a huge part of it. And because I was never really explicitly anti-science, you know, I grew up as a kid going to high school and, you know, I was never like a creationist or anything like that, yeah. um, you know, and, you know, I, but I, but I didn't really learn much about evolution in high school because ironically enough, the, I went to a very rural, rural high school in the middle of nowhere. My graduating class in high school is 120. That's and about how so mine was, was just, about 110. <laughs> right, <clears throat> right on. And so 
the head of our sciences, she never explicitly said it, but she was a creationist. And so she was very clever. What she would do is she would leave talking about natural selection and evolution broadly to the end of the semester. So she either had to just gloss over it or not talk about it at all. Okay. And I've always made the point of saying, like, how do you try to talk about biology without talking about evolution? It's kind of like trying to teach English lit without Shakespeare. It's just very weird. It doesn't make sense. Right. Um, but yeah, like, I think the first book on, like, the first actual book I read about evolution was Why Evolution is True by Jerry Coyne. That was the mm-hmm. first one I read. And I remember I had this, like, this, like, like sort of earth shattering, like, sort of like, epiphany awe moment when I was reading it and, he, and, and towards the end of the book he has this graph of humanoid of humanoid skulls over millions of years and how they change over time and just seeing all of them kind of laid out in this long history and then sort of having that epiphany of like I'm a part of that long, larger story hmm. that like I'm a part of that and that like blew my mind um, so science was something that came to me later but definitely the primary my primary um, influence in terms of becoming an atheist and humanist was philosophy. And mm-hmm. there were a particularly when it comes to humanism specifically, because while I definitely identify as an atheist, if someone asked me, are you an atheist? I'd say yes. Mm-hmm. The term I, den- I tend to prefer to use is secular humanist. And there were really two people who I read who were very influential in that. One was a guy named Corliss Lamont, mm-hmm. who's not as well remembered today, but very wonderful uh, philosopher, and and uh, political activist, and he wrote a book it called the philosophy of, of uh, philosophy of humanism, mm-hmm. and in the nineteen fifties, and that book is wonderful. Um, and it was one of those where he <clears throat> he lays out in very uh, eloquent but accessible ways, sort of you know, here's our theory of science, here's our theory of history, here's how we view you know the changes in philosophy. This is where the humanist tradition comes from. Um, and it's great. It's a wonderful book. And then the other person who was very influential on in me is the late Paul Kurtz. Mm. Um, Paul Kurtz was another huge deal who was influenced by Lamont. And Paul Kurtz uh, was part of um, PSYCOP, the, the central skeptical society that debunked people, you know, debunked paranormal stuff with James Randi and all those guys. Right, right. But Kurtz wrote a book called, um, he wrote this wonderful book called, uh, um, affirmations, which is this a short little book of just sort of aphoristic mm. phrases about humanism and sort of, you know, here's the, here's the general humanist attitude towards love and sex. Here's the general attitude of humanism towards science. Here's the general attitude towards politics or democracy. And that book was really important to me. Um, and, and then um, just reading his work on skepticism, which is heavily influenced by John Dewey, mm-hmm. all these guys and another person who was sort of in this circle is a guy named Sidney Hook. Um, all these guys are influenced by John Dewey, the, the, the great American pragmatist philosopher. And what their, what their view of the world was, was it was, yes, we're materialists. Yes, we do not believe in God. But here's what we actually believe in. Here's what we advocate for. Right. And it's, you know, it's, it's, we're advocating for science. We're advocating for skeptical inquiry and open-mindedness. And we're advocating for democracy and human rights. And all of those to go together into a cohesive whole. And they, and they interact with one another. And all of those are really impactful on me. Yeah, that's, that's a great rundown. And I, um, I hope listeners will um, go back if necessary or go to the show notes where I'll 
link up some of those titles and, and so that you can grab them. Cause um, I agree that um, Corliss Lamont is, is really great as an introduction to humanism. I'm often asked for a good introduction to humanism and it's, it's odd that I, I keep referring to this, you know, 60, 70 year old book um, that is, is really nicely done. And I think one of the critiques of humanism is that it isn't integrated completely. It's sort of like a collection of ideas. It's not like a, a cohesive, um, philosophy where, whereas, you know, like Christianity is at least, you know, I mean, there's many Christianities of course, but, but Christianity is sort of like this religion of Jesus and Jesus life and death and everything's built around the life and death, the redemptive death and resurrection of Jesus. And then everything else accretes around that. And humanism, you know, you would think it would be the human, you know, and I guess it, it sort of is that, that I just gave a talk in uh, one of my friend's classes at USC about humanism and you know, I said, you know, humanism in the word itself, it, it, it highlights the centrality of the human. Um, but in my view, at least, not because humans are transcendent above other forms of life, but because that is the, the locus of my agency is I'm a human. Um, it's not that I'm better than cows and elephants and dolphins and pigs and everything else, um, but that I I can't, the thing I can do something about, the, the locus of my agency is me the human and maybe primarily then secondarily my other you know human community um so anyway there's and then we talked about some of the problem maybe i'll get a chance to ask you what you think of some of the challenges facing humanism are um but i, I do appreciate hearing those those early influences for you and um so i mean to me what dominates my thinking these days it, it's funny because i um I left, as, as listeners know, and I'm, I'm sure you know, I was a, a pastor for 20 years and left in 2013. And in 2014, I did this year without God, where I sort of took a year and really explored who are atheists and what mm -hmm. do they, sort of like what you were saying, like, here's what, I know that they don't believe in God, but is there anything in common that atheists have that they believe? Or then I discovered humanism. And, and I had heard of these things before, but they were kind of like boogeymen in my Bible classes. You know, there was like the secular humanist, which was, you know, trying to, you know, corrupt the minds of the youth in the public high schools and stuff like that. And, uh, and then I realized, oh, I'm, I'm, now I'm a secular humanist. Um, but, but what really dominates my thinking more than um, arguments for or against the existence of God is um, what I guess, broadly speaking, I would call politics. Um, politics, I often say with a little p, um, you know, the big P politics in my mind is sort of partisan politics, Republicans versus Democrats, elections, uh, who's the president, who is your local, um, you know, elected officials, and what, what influence we can have in that sphere, um, all of which is, I think, super important um, to a point. Um, but but then so for me, like what I say, little p politics is like, where does my food come from? Like, how much does my, you know, how much energy am I using as a person? What am I, what am I choosing to eat? Um, how do I relate to my neighbor? What does my housing situation say about my relationship to others? And um, all that kind of stuff. That's really politics. It's really, to, to my mind, the struggle for control over the power to live a free life. And and who has that power and why do they have it and, um, and kind of exploring that. So I wonder if I could just, in that long-winded way, ask you to reflect on how your humanism and maybe even atheism to a point 
influences how you feel about politics and what's going on in the world today. And we can get into, if you want, we can get into the election or not, but I, okay. I'm thinking now more about just general, um, what is the politics of humanism? Like, is there, is there a politics of humanism? Okay. So for me, uh, I can, you know, I think that the politics of humanism for me is socialism. Um, I, I think that, that in general, if you look at a lot of the great sort of humanist thinkers of history, mm-hmm. whether it's Corliss Lamont, um, who was a, a socialist, wrote treatises on socialism, or even Bertrand Russell, who identified as a socialism, um, a socialist. Uh, I think that there's, when you sort of have a philosophy of life, which is predicated in the idea of, as you said earlier, the centrality of human experience and human connectedness, to me, that it's a very natural corollary to make your political ideas more in line with sort of how can we create a society which is more um, connected, which is more democratic, which is more, um, which is more, rooted in real concerns and material conditions of people rather than sort of uh, the a politics which is rooted in sort of prestige or power for power's sake. And, and so, you know, for me, there was a, a huge sort of shift over the last couple of years for me politically. Um, and I think that happened with the switch from more sort of atheism sort of capital A atheism activism that I did to humanism. Hmm. Uh, my, my opinion is that there's a lot within the broader secular community and I, and I don't, and I want to preface this by saying there are a lot of great organizations who aren't like this. So I'll say the secular student Alliance is wonderful. The American humanist association is great. Um, the, you know, the secular coalition of America, there are a lot of great organizations. Having said that, in my opinion, the atheist movement has, a lot of reactionary toxic politics. Hmm. Um, and it's rooted in the, in my opinion, this sort of like overriding sort of neoliberal view of the world. And when I may say neoliberal, it's sort of the consensus politics of the last 40 years of, you know, free markets means free people, you know, everything's a market transaction. Um, and that, you know, or as, you know, Margaret Thatcher said, the former prime minister of Great Britain, where she said, there is no such thing as society, right? Mm. And individuals. And, and, and she said, there's only, there's only individuals. And then people kind of smacked her down. And then she, she had to kind of say, they're individuals and families. Um, but there it's is always, Just as a quick aside, it's always weird to me that, that politicians can say that when they literally w- ran and won an election to represent the collective of individuals. Yeah, it's very, very weird. It's kind of like when Ronald Reagan said, like, the most terrifying nine words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, like, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. It's this whole thing of, like, I don't like the government, but I'm in the government. And so, I mean, that's my, my feeling about right-wing politics in general, which is it's sort of a cycle where it's like, they talk about how government is awful. They get in power and they really screw it all up by defunding it, by deregulating it, by putting stupid people in charge. It gets really, really bad. They get to run again talking about how government is awful and they get reelected and the cycle keeps going. Yeah. And I find that to be really bad. Um, so yeah, it's I totally tough to agree run on making things better and then it doesn't get as much better as maybe people thought. And then it's hard to run again because you said it was going to get better. It's yeah. sort of like a felt self-fulfilling prophecy to say like government is the problem and, 
and then sure enough, it proves to be the problem. <laughs> yeah, right. Because it's because it's kind of like a self-licking ice cream cone. Like at, at some point, you know, it's always going to be that way if that's your your general if that's your general like starting point. Mm-hmm. And in my general starting point is that we can actually build a more democratic society. And so, you know, one thing I one people try to ask me in general, like, what does socialism mean to you? what socialism means to me is it's the democratization of society. Mm. So right now we have democracy in the United States, although, you know, give it time, give it time, you know, Um, and where you have elections and people can vote and everything like that. But that's all the only place where democracy really exists. You don't have democracy in the workplace. You don't have democracy in your home. It's like a procedural electoral democracy. Exactly. And the goal of socialism, in my opinion, is to expand that notion of democracy to all aspects of life, where you have democratic control over how you live. You have democratic control, along with others, of how you work. And, 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 the, and the, the, the benefits of your work are controlled mm-hmm. democratically. Um, and that, you know, and that the, the benefits of society are determined socially well they're not determined by a very small smattering of people at the very very top who make decisions for everyone else um and so that is what socialism is to me and to me in general i i think that socialism is a natural outgrowth of humanism based on the idea that humanists are very rooted in the idea of caring for others and having a sense of community and having a sense of collective action Uh And, but, but doesn't, but a sense of collective action that doesn't actually meet the individual, but actually affirms and strengthens and upholds the individual. So that's the other component to it too. So let me ask you this and I get, you know, it's funny. I I love doing these conversations and I sometimes pity the listener because I'm I'm like, I'm, I'm going to talk to you now about what I want to talk to you about. I have no idea if this is interesting to anybody else. (laughs) But, um, so, so I also, um, I don't, engage deeply in this world, partly because I'm not educated well enough to do so, but I listen in on also on like anarchist Twitter. And so there's a whole stream of like left individualism, what I would call, you know, left anarchism or left libertarianism in a way um, that is still very like strong on the individual, less so on the collective, fearful and suspicious of um, or just downright rejects the idea of uh, government control of any kind and, and is really anti-democracy. Um, you know, in fact, a, friend, a guy that I follow on Twitter has written a book called Against Democracy. And, um, and I think, and again, this, as far as I, you know, my surface level understanding, part of the risk of democracy is that a powerful majority will dominate, you know, we could call it the, the tyranny of the majority. And, and so we have a, a system of, of government, supposedly, hopefully, ideally, in the United States that protects the minority, even, in, even within a, a system of democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, what I find interesting is like, if I bring politics from the national level down to my city, and my, I live in Pasadena, California, we have about 140,000 people who live in our city. We're immediately adjacent to Los Angeles, which is a ginormous, you know, the second largest city in the country. So we, uh, we do have the sort of the LA effect, but our city is pretty, pretty manageable size, 140,000 people. And if we were to examine the material conditions of our city, the majority 
our, our tenants, the majority make less than the median income in the city. So as it turns out, even though African-Americans and Latinos and Asian individuals make up the minority, each of those subsets makes up a minority of the population, the majority, economically speaking, are not the super wealthy. And so anyway, I guess I, I, that's sort of a, a preface to saying, like, how do you, how do you, in your view of socialism and democratic socialism, um, view the notion of um, the way that democracy can become tyrannous and how we prevent that and kind of maybe what you feel about anarchism? Sure. So I'll kind of answer those in reverse order. I'll talk about anarchism first. So I have a very strong affinity for, for anarchism. Um, I have a poster of Emma Goldman in my office. It's right above me. Like there's, it's a very noble tradition, right? But I have fundamental disagreements with it. And most of those are rooted in the fact that I am a Marxist. So my influence is, is Marx. Marx was not an anarchist, but he did eventually believe in the idea of a stateless society, but his whole argument and it's something that he is wrote. He wrote a book called The Poverty of Philosophy, which is a response to um, Pierre Joseph Proudhon, who was a very heavily influential French anarchist philosopher around the time of Marx. And they had this very interesting dialogue with each other. And ultimately, what Marx believed, and kind of what I believe, is if left, um, if left unchecked, uh, there's a there's a notion to me that anarchism can be essentially a bourgeois project that it can it can kind of devolve into being a bourgeois project. And what I mean by that is that the same kind of arguments that left anarchists use about sort of the futility of systems and government, this and that, and the other, can be the very same arguments that it uses, but for more nefarious purposes. Because in my opinion, right, again, you cut out for just a second that who uses. So the, the sort of the left libertarianism, when they talk, or the sort of the left anarchists, when they talk about the notion of the state and that we should just abolish right. the states and this and that and the other, it's not worth fighting with, um, they often make, like, ironically and unintentionally, they often make the same arguments that the right makes in terms of the extreme sort of capitalists makes. Um, you know, there are times where you can read a sentence of somebody like, you know, Noam Chomsky, and it reads like Murray Rothbard, who was a very known anarcho-capitalist, right? So there's this weird interlap, uh, overlap. What Marx challenged anarchism with was this idea of, obviously, historical materialism. You have to look at the real material conditions of the way people live right now, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of smashing the state, which he sort of talked about, and, and Lenin would write about in State and Revolution, the idea of smashing the state without having a clear view of exactly what replaces it is where anarchists fall apart because Marx believed essentially in this idea of moving to away from what we live in now, which is what he called the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie right. to the dictatorship of the proletariat. Now for people who hear that, they think, Oh, dictator, blah, blah, blah. That's not really what Marx meant. The better way yeah, to say it's a play it is, on words. Yeah. It's a play on words. What he's really saying is that right now we have a government of, of the elite class and we should have a government of the working class. And his belief was to ch- create essentially what he called a semi-state or a transitional state. And that transitional state is socialism. And then eventually you get to communism, which is the abandonment, the, you know, what Marx and of course Lenin would write about later, the withering away of the state. So my big difference with anarchists is that 
we largely agree in sort of the ends. Like, yes, it would be lovely to live in a society without government. Um, but, you know, but, but it's about the means. How do you actually get there? Because if your yeah. whole intention is just sort of from the outside saying, oh, the state's evil, we just have to smash it and then not replace it with anything else or not think sort of more systematically about it. Right. And I think that's where the problem is. Having said that, I will say there are, I think, really intelligent arguments for anarchism. Somebody like a Murray Bookchin um, in the anarcho-syndicalist tradition, somebody like Noam Chomsky. There are, I think, intelligent arguments for anarchism that are not sort of superficial, but, but that's not my view of it. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, and you're obviously more well, Mel, bleh, well read than I am uh, on, on this right now. And um, I, but I have the same feeling that um, there's a kind of idealism with anarchism. Like when I, when I think about, you know, the pandemic that we're currently living through and I wonder, you know, if it was really each person for themselves and, you know, mutual aid, I, I don't, you know, I don't know how anarchism scales to care for a mass population going through a, a mass crisis. Um, and, and I, it's funny, I have this ongoing argument with, not our friendly argument with a friend of mine who identifies as a, uh, as a left libertarian. And, you know, I say, I, I don't think I have enough faith in human beings uh, to be a left libertarian, um, you know, because it really depends on my neighbor having my best interest, uh, you know, and, and he says, well, I, I don't think I have enough faith in human beings to believe in, you know, state, uh, state control or, or, you know, state socialism. And, you know, and I get that too, you know, because, and so when I was lecturing yesterday about uh, humanism, I said, you know, problems with humanism was the heading. And my first problem with humanism was humans, you know, we are yeah. so, so unpredictable and so unreliable and um, really uh, self-defeating in so many ways, you know, without an ability very often to see the long view and to act in short with short term uh, consequences or, or uh, pleasure in mind. And uh, without the ability to, you know, a, cl a classic example, of course, is uh, what we're doing to the climate, you know, and how hard it is for us to really take seriously that long view. And also that we're faced with immediate crises that seem to never let up. So we really can't turn our attention to bigger picture questions. We're constantly fighting the next war or in this case, you know, a pandemic. Um, yeah. And, and capitalism is, I think, is predicated on that. So you know, capitalism thrives on chaos and crisis. It's, it's, it's sort of what keeps it malleable. And mm -hmm. I think this is one of the ways in which I think we have to get more, more interesting and we have to come up with new solutions for a, for a genuinely sort of left or socialist politics because the reason that capitalism succeeds, even when it fails time and time and time and time again, is that it molds itself. It's very much like a chameleon. It changes and becomes something different. And in that changing, it allows itself to reinforce the dominant system. Hmm. And so I think that, for me at least, having a sort of left or socialist politics is also rooted in a little bit of that flexibility. It's the ability to sort of, you know, use critical thinking and, 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 and use open-mindedness to sort of think about different ideas, you know, and think about ways to be more um, inventive and sort of innovative about how we, about how we do um, uh, a new political system. So, you know, that's why, you know, there's these, there's this, the classic debate among, you know, leftists, reform or revolution, mm -hmm. you know, the Rosa Luxemburg thing. And, you know, my answer is all of the above. Um, and so, you know, to me, 
you know, electoralism definitely has its place. Um, you know, I'm not going to be one of those sort of like nihilists who says like, oh, well, it doesn't matter, whoever, blah, blah. it's like, actually it does, you know, and, and, and local elections matter and what you do in local elections matter and the kind of candidates you choose matter and what you do at the federal level matters. And, you know, I think the right in this country is very, very good at unifying and they're very, very good at sort of putting all their differences aside and fighting as a mass, as sort of a popular front. And we're not on the left very good at that because we have our own little niches and this and that and the other. And haven't been for over 100 years. Like, nope. you, know, you know, from the very beginning of the the Russian Revolution and even before that, you know, the, um, the uh, what am I trying to say, the Bolsheviks. And I mean, it, you know, we didn't it's always been, you know, Trotsky and Lenin and, you know, like versus the, the you know, the, yep. yeah, it just, it just uh, fractures, you know? Absolutely. I mean, Lenin wrote a book in later part of his life called left-wing communism and infantile disorder, where he lays out like his objections to the sort of more radical wing of, of, of what he saw within the broader movement. And yeah, I mean, there were disagreements, right? So Lenin had disagreements with them. He also had disagreements with a guy named Karl Kautsky who was sort of the heir apparent to Marx. He translated a lot of Marx's works. He worked directly with Engels on finishing um, the final volumes of Capital, of Marx's masterwork on capitalism. Um, but Kautsky at the end of the day was, was in, in, in Lenin's view, was what he called a renegade. He wrote, he wrote a book called The Renegade Kautsky and, and talked about how um, because Kautsky supported social democracy over actual workers' state, and he supported World War One, and that was like absolutely a no go. Was was supporting World War One for Lenin? Right. So yes, there's these real divides, and that's not to say we shouldn't have genuine disagreements. I think we should, right? Like, like there's, in my opinion, there is no space in left wing politics for someone like Joe Biden. Period. Right. He's not a leftist. He's not, he has not, there's nothing left-wing about him. Most of the Democratic Party isn't left-wing. Right. There's really have, no left party in the United no. States. We have a center party in the Democrats and we have a right party in the Republicans. There is not a left party in this country. And that is why this country is so, um, is so far to the right. Because every time it pushes to the right a little, little bit, the Democrats capitulate again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Because, the, because in my opinion, they're both bourgeois. And but there's an argument to be made that the Democrats are almost the more bourgeois party in the sense that they're the ones of like Silicon Valley and 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 private equity and they're the ones who, who like the Democrat. I mean, just to get topical, I know we're we, we're sort of talking about broader things, but one specific thing is like the Democratic Party put more intelligence and synchronicity and strategy in defeating Bernie Sanders than they ever did in defeating anyone. And if, or defeating and, COVID-19 even. Or defeating COVID-19 or yeah. defeating Trump or defeating anybody, right? Yeah. Like, you know, like they all congregated together and all the candidates drop out and yeah. they all go behind Biden. It was like peak like, efficiency for the Democratic Party. Totally peak efficiency. And you know, all of that was happening because Obama was like Don Corleone in the background making <laughs> phone calls to people. I mean, like this, like they're really good at that kind of stuff. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, they're not very good at winning elections. Democrats are professional losers. The, the, and, and that's really the, the thing that sucks about, about the failures of sort of the Sanders campaign or the sort of the failures of the broader progressive left in the country in general is that like, I think that in my opinion, we need to learn to get a little bit tougher, you know? Yeah, it um, feels like the, um, 
because the Republicans or the right in this country controls the narrative, the only way to really get elected is to say, I'm also conservative, but nicer, you know? Yeah. And, and so you can say, oh yeah, like, I don't really think that we should socialize anything, you know? In fact, we should privatize more public schools or whatever. Like, yeah, you know, you can even get, uh, you know, Democrats to agree with that. You know, Joe Biden famously affirms downsizing Medicare and um, Social Security and, you know, all that stuff. I mean, there's really no daylight between Biden and Ronald Reagan in many cases. And, and then, you know, so then the only way for Democrats to get uh, really recognized, or at least they think this, is to sort of appeal to that electorate that wants things to be conservative, but with a smile and an aw shucks and, you know, kind of a, you know, a lilt in their, in their um, tone, rather than really leaning in, I think, as Bernie Sanders did, into the, the radical, and by radical, I mean like grassroots, like mm -hmm. people in where they live, they're lived, like you, you've said repeatedly, the material conditions of people living in communities. I mean, I remember having arguments about Obamacare even with people in my family who were against it. And I said, you know, dad, do you know any, um, any uh, immigrants, you know? And, you know, he was saying, oh, immigrants are going to get Medicare for all, or I mean, Obamacare, and, you know, that's not right. And I said, do you, do you know any immigrants, you know? And I said, I, you know, part of my life in the social justice struggle in Los Angeles is I have personal relationships with families that work, you know, husband, wife work three jobs between the two of them, all part-time, none of them provide health care for them. And they're, so they're not lazy, they're not not working. And in the whole notion of laziness anyway, like I hate to even dignify that with a, yeah. with a, with a response, but, but you know, it's just, I don't think there's a sense that people are deeply in touch with the lived experience of the people they represent. Even my local mm -hmm. officials here, 56% um, of my community, my city are tenants and a, a large percentage of them are minimum wage uh, workers. And you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it to, to really see if you walked in the town. Um, it's segregated like a lot of towns and it's a, it's a real challenge. And I, I think, you know, part of what we, I wish we could do is to create a, a distinct power center on the left. And I don't, you know, there's always two ways, right? There's the, um, you know, moving the democratic party to the left, which I think has been the default strategy um, and then, you know, creating a third party. But if you create a third party, you have to lose a lot of elections before you, you know, get to the place where you, you know, can control some power. So I don't know what the way forward is, honestly. I'm pretty discouraged about the whole thing. Um, we clearly have to get Trump out. Um, but the fact that we have to do it by supporting Biden makes me ill. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, I... You know, I'll be I'll be completely honest with you. I'm very up in the air about whether I want to vote for Joe Biden. I mean, the man, you know, right before the financial crisis, passes a despicable, you know, uh, uh, bankruptcy bill, yep. which left many people completely devastated. He supported the war in Iraq. He supported the crime bill of the early '90s, which led to mass incarceration. Um, and you know, and then obviously, like. On top of all of that, there's a credible sexual allegation, act, uh, assault allegation against him. Like, yeah. I mean, there's not much daylight between who Joe Biden is and who Donald Trump is. And like, and, and the thing that drives me nuts about Biden is that like his whole, his whole argument is about, we're going to restore the soul of America. 
And it's all like these, these, this sort of homilies and nonsense, you know, and platitudes and whatever. But when he's always talking about like, I want to bring honor and integrity back to the white house, this and that and the other. But then if you've looked at him on the campaign trail over the last year, he's been incredibly insulting to people at his events, whether it was him calling one of the people who came to his rally, asking him a legitimate question about his son, calling the guy fat, basically fat shaming a, 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 a constituent, yelling at a union member who in screaming at them and telling them they're full of the S word. Mm-hmm. You had, um, you know, him calling one woman at an event, a dog face pony soldier. Like that's not, that's not honor and integrity. That's not that you're not being any better than Donald Trump when you're doing that kind of stuff. And so it just seems very hollow and facile. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing that's frustrating to me where I feel like the Democrats really failed is it's been in this decades long problem. And I blame it on the Clintons who I think destroyed the the democratic party. I, I, I flat out say that I think that Bill and Hillary Clinton were the worst thing that ever happened to the democratic party. Um, is that basically we don't talk about economic issues anymore. We just don't, right? Or if we do, we sort of talk about them in these sort of broad things where it's, you know, Obama, I'm going to talk about inequality. You know, equality's bad. I'm not going to do anything about it. It's like, it's a lot of this sort of posturing and moral posturing and cultural posturing without actually doing anything to help people out. So like one of the ways in which that I'm really frustrated with the way that Democrats run elections is that they're obsessed with like cultural politics and, the, and, and they, and they seed the economic arguments to the right. And they sort of talk about how, well, we're the party that supports African-Americans. We're the party that supports gay rights. We, you know, LGBTQ rights. We're the party that does this and that. And it's like, yes, you do, but you don't do enough to actually change that. You know, you know, who, you know, who would benefit from Medicare for all transgender people mm-hmm. big time. You know, okay. Mm-hmm. African-Americans who have been disproportionately hurt by this COVID-19 crisis, right? Mm-hmm. You know, those are the people, when you actually help change people's material conditions and you make that argument, you're actually, you're actually improving the culture. You're actually making, you're actually standing behind what you say you believe. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing I'm so tired of is I'm so tired of the sort of empty posture on cultural stuff from the Democrats when they don't really pair that at all with real solutions to inequality, to healthcare, to the climate, all of it. Mm -hmm. And it's not enough anymore to say, you know, it's not enough just to say trans rights are human rights. We all believe that that's a baseline for us, right? As people who are, who have empathy, but that's not enough. You actually have to say trans rights are human rights, which is why we're introducing an economic bill of rights, just like FDR did in the forties. You're guaranteed healthcare, you're guaranteed to a job. So like, that's my thing is that like the Democrats need to learn again, the values that they, that they once had Mm -hmm. during the new deal period, FDR, Truman, uh, Lyndon Johnson, to even, to even to a lesser extent, someone like Richard Nixon, right? Right. Uh, You know, so that like advocating for broad social programs that benefit people's lives and the Democrats just don't do that. They do these like, Oh, we're going to give you small business tax credits and we're going to means test it. So if you have less than five employees, we'll give you this percent and you have more than five employees. We're going to give you that. It's like, nobody cares about that. Yeah. You know, it's peanuts. It's just, it's just like crumbs. Yep. And, and the whole thing, you know, you know, the, the, the refrain, how, how can we afford it? And there's just no, and we haven't even talked about, and I, I, yeah, probably shouldn't talk about foreign policy, but, you know, there's really never a a substantive critique of of military spending and foreign policy 
uh, imperialism abroad. I mean, there's mm -hmm. almost no distinction between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to um, foreign policy. Um, and it's, it's really a shame. And, and I think what I'm hopeful that maybe the, this COVID-19 crisis might reveal is that we do have capacity to lift the, the body politic um, and in mass. And we do have the capacity to improve materially the conditions of people's lives. And we're not going to, you know, we're not handing out, you know, four bedroom homes to everyone, but we can make sure that everyone's housed. You know, we can give people living wages. Uh, we can provide health care to every man, woman, and child. Um, you know, we can provide education to anyone who wants it. And, and those things will redound to a stronger republic. I mean, a stronger um, community. I mean, I, I just don't understand why we don't, pe more people don't see that a well-educated, healthy uh, community populace is good for us. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it, it's not useful. And I think, again, this is where the pandemic really highlights this. It's not good for anyone to be going around sick. I don't, it doesn't matter if you're undocumented or that you have a document that says you belong here. If you're sick, you have a, run the risk of getting me sick and getting my kids sick and everybody gets sick. So it doesn't matter where you're from or how you got here or how much money you make or what kind of job you have, whether someone else thinks your job is a good one or not. None of that matters. It's, mm -hmm. it, what matters is the, the health and well-being of the people in our communities. And we spend more money putting people in jail for minor infractions than we do providing the basics of, of success for families and we wonder why we have more incarcerated people in this country than any other country and mm -hmm. um and, and while the and why this crisis is the worst in the world why right the united we, states we, of all places yeah whereas you know and it's like it's remarkable to me that you know this sort of tying in into humanism one of the big things that, that unites us as humanism is the universality of human concern, that we mm -hmm. have a universal concern for everyone, right? We don't care where you come from, who you are, who you love. We don't care. We care about your basic human dignity and rights, right? And if you look at, in America, the, the most successful and most popular programs in the history of the country are ones that are universal. Mm. You know, Social Security, 65 and up, you get it. Doesn't matter who you are. Mm -hmm. Medicare. If you're 65 and up, doesn't matter. You get it who you are, right? Mm -hmm. The reason why public people, school, public school, everybody under the age of 18, you get to go to school, right? Universal programs. The best parts of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, are the universal parts about it. Yep. The banning the lifetime caps on care, the banning of of discrimination against pre-existing conditions, the the Medicaid expansion, which was arguably the most successful part of the Affordable Care Act. Again, these are all universal things that people that, that broad groups of people can use, right? And less and, bureaucracy to manage. Absolutely, right? Because the part of the Affordable Care Act that was terrible, that sucked, was the exchange thing. Which the is means this, testing part. The means testing part of it. This nasty market-based solution that was originally right. cooked up by the Heritage Foundation by Bob Dole in 1996 when he ran against Bill Clinton. Like, it's this, it's this weird, nasty crap of like, oh, we're going to means, like, no. Let's end that BS, right? You know, yeah. housing for all, Medicare for all, Social Security for all. Let's stop with this means testing crap. And the big re another reason why universal programs are good is it doesn't create resentment among people. Mm. If everyone gets it, 
there's going to be a lot less resentment of, oh, well, it's only for immigrants or it's only for so-and-so. No, everybody gets it. Now, that's not going to, I'm not negating the fact that there are just people who are genuinely nasty and racist and horrible and are always going to be that way. Right. And, but, and there are ways, people find ways of making universal programs awful, like public school. Like we have, yeah. we've decided to fund public schools through property taxes. And so therefore the, the uh, you know, the racist uh, housing policies and zoning policies have devastated public schools for people of color. So even, yeah, absolutely. there's even ways of screwing up a, a ostensibly really great program. Absolutely. Or if you think of something like what's going on right now with the U.S. Postal Service. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it's really the only government agency that is required to fund its, its pension plan for like 80 years. It's the only one. Or the IRS, which has had its, its, its um, staffing cut by a third over the last 10 years, right? This is what Republicans do. They get in power, or right-wingers broadly, they get in power and they starve the government of resources. Mm-hmm. Continually starve it, right? So that, they can't, so that the bureaucracy sucks because there's no money to fund anything because there aren't enough people, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the huge problem is it's like, do you know how much money we would just save if we adequately funded and staffed these programs? People would be able to get the stuff they need and there wouldn't be as much waste or whatever. Like, and even then, like, we're a country that has over 900 military bases around the world. Do we really need 900 military bases around the world? Do we really need that? Do we really, you know, you know, universal like college in this country could be funded by stopping one or two bomber programs that were funded by Northrop Grumman. Like it's, it's about priorities. So when people say, how are you going to pay for it? It's like, well, how did the Fed pay for its multi-trillion dollar backdoor loans to Wall Street in 2008? And now, mm-hmm. you know, they're doing it right now. So this idea that like, again, it's about the fact that like, we only have democracy in the, in the, in the, the sort of narrowest political sense. And what socialism is expanding that democracy that includes more people in the process so that left, less, people are, less people are left out. Mm-hmm. That's the whole goal. And to me, when you actually give people the basics of life, you actually give them a whole new birth of freedom and individuality they wouldn't have had otherwise. And this mm-hmm. was Carl Polanyi's great insight in his book, The Great Transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, he's no radical, you know, he was a Keynesian. And his whole argument was, when you make these basic services available to people, people will have more freedom to be who they want to be and more freedom to be themselves than they would otherwise. Yeah. So those are the, I mean, that's the argument for me. Have you read um, my, my now friend, uh, Martin Hagelin's book, This Life? No, I haven't. I have it on my shelf. I've okay. been meaning to read it. I know he yeah. has a chapter devoted to stuff like this. I cannot wait to get to it. Yeah, it's like a, it's two parts, but it's like one third, two thirds from my memory at least. And the, the second two third, the second half, the two thirds at the end is um, there's a long treatise about Marx that you'll love and um, really goes after this idea that Marx was an authoritarian or that the authoritarian sort of um, uh, approach that Stalin ended up in the communist uh, party in the, in the USSR ended up uh, taking was not, it's not intrinsic to, uh, to Marx. And, um, and he, but he also talks a lot about the goal of, you know, any social program, any social democratic program is to create freedom such that individuals can experience the full life that they can experience the wholeness and the fullness of what it means to be themselves. And we're each different, you know, some people 
love to spend their free time painting. Others will be gardening. Some will be riding their bikes. Some will be hiking. Some will be building uh, uh, furniture. You know, it's, it just depends on what you like to do. And uh, some will be making podcasts and reading philosophy and writing papers that edify other people. And I think this idea that, um, you know, he, he talks about um, like free time being sort of the measure of our freedom and what we do or, or how much control we have over our time is, is really indicative of the kind of, um, of freedom that we have. And, and I think this is so humanistic at its core, the idea that we would be free human beings to explore and create the life that we want, um, mm -hmm. whether it's you know, nurturing a family or a loving relationship with a partner uh, whatever we starting a business you know, creating crafts that you could take to market and sell and exchange for other people's things. Um, all of this is wonderful, beautiful stuff that most people don't have time to do because they're selling their labor at a loss uh, to someone who controls that. And it's fundamentally dehumanizing. And so for me, humanism is about reclaiming our humanity and creating a social system, a government, a politic, that that affirms that and protects it and and um allows for human flourishing which is what i think humanism says it wants yeah absolutely it reminds me of of that great quote from marx where he talks about you know i'm gonna you know hunt in the morning fish in the afternoon rear cattle in the evening criticize after dinner just <laughs> as i have a mind without ever becoming a hunter a fisherman a herdsman or a critic it's that idea of you know you could pursue your talent yeah. having the weight, the crushing weight of an economic system like capitalism on you. One of the ways that I read Marx is that a lot of times the way sometimes historians of philosophy or intellectual history will do is they'll sort of include Marx as, as sort of a counter-enlightenment figure. They'll often sort of lump him in with, with mm -hmm. people like Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and others. But I think that's a wrong view. Yeah, anti-freedom. Yeah, yeah anti-freedom, anti-individualism, this and that. I think that's actually a really wrong view. If you look at what Marx was really doing, Marx saw himself as an extension of the Enlightenment. And what, what he was doing was an extension of the Enlightenment. The thinkers who he was most influenced by were mm -hmm. Enlightenment thinkers. They were yeah, Hegel. Adam, Hegel, Adam Smith, um, uh, David Ricardo, Rousseau, all of them. And he saw what he was doing was taking what the Enlightenment had done and expanding it to include more and to mm -hmm. sort of break it out of its own limitations. And so Marxism to me is a fulfillment of, of the enlightenment rather than a, and a renunciation of it. And in, in an extension that to me makes Marx a humanist philosopher. And, and, and there's a deep humanism within Marx, um, contrary to what post-Marxist uh, thinker Louis Althusser says, um, there is a deep humanism within Marx. Um, and that I think is worth pres preserving and, and really going back to. Hmm. No, that's fantastic. Where would you, um, where would you recommend the, you know, uneducated, I don't, uneducated is the wrong way to say it, non-specialist reader to begin uh, reading Marx? I think that's a great question. So I would say the first stuff you should, obviously you need to read the Communist Manifesto. Um, I think it's a, it's a terrific short book. It's very easy to read. Yeah, super it's short. And it lays out exactly his political philosophy and Engels' philosophy in a very short period of time. It lays out the theory of historical materialism, um, that, uh, that the means of production sort of construct society, not the other way around. Um, it lays out a political force for action, 
um, and it lays out his sort of theory of change. Um, the other things I think that you should, Marks, because um, I particularly like a lot of the early stuff. So read selections. You don't have to read the whole thing, but read selections from the German ideology, um, which is a book he co-authored with Engels, where he sort of lays out his opposition to or his critiques of of um, thinkers like Ludwig Feuerbach and uh, Hegel and sort of demystifying Hegel. Um, there's this great quote in the German ideology where I'm paraphrasing where Marx says, you know, Hegel was all about um, going from earth to heaven. And we're actually about bringing heaven to earth. Yeah. That's, that's the way my mind just works. You know, you yep. know what I, <laughs> I often say that like Christianity is about, you know, moving from heaven to earth to heaven and Judaism was about bringing heaven down to earth, you know? Mm-hmm. And I always, you know, even in spite of the fact that I was, I'm not Jewish by ethnicity or, or upbringing or anything um, as a Christian theologian, I was always more attracted to Judaism because Judaism was about, you know, this um, very earthy, very um, gory in some sense, you know, um, hands dirty kind of religion where it's about, you know, creating the mystical, magical thing, bringing it down here and, mm-hmm. and like reveling in it. it. They absolutely. I think that's, that's exactly my view of it. And that was Marx's view of it. And the last thing I would recommend in terms of starting to read Marx is a later work. Um, that's a shorter work called the critique of the Gotha program um, where it's the Gotha program was the political program of the, of the new um, German social democratic party, which exists today. It's, it's called SPD. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there were a couple different left socialist parties in that in the 1870s and they merged and Marx basically read their program and critiqued it. Um, and particular, what he was doing when reading it was basically laying out like his belief was within the Gotham program was that they were sort of laying out this sort of, sort of fra- flowery rhetoric instead of really rooting whatever the politics they were advocating for in like real actionable political um, decisions rather than sort of broad stuff. So he talks about like, so anyway, but that's a really great one um, to read. Um, and, you know, I think that Marx is one of those who was, he was such a polymath. He wrote, he, he wrote so many different kinds of things, but yeah, definitely the manifesto and the critique of the Gotha program and a little bit of German ideology. They'll give a good sense of Marx. Yeah. I know people try to start into capital as I have done a few times and it's uh, a lot of heavy sledding there, but Totally. Uh, I will say, though, if you're interested in learning and reading about capital, but reading a version of it that's accessible, there's a wonderful edition that Dover Publishing puts out called The Essential Marks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically, it was an, a, a small, less than 200 pages volume uh, edited by Leon Trotsky, the, the, the great oh, yeah. Marxist revolutionary. There's an introduction by Trotsky, and then the next 150 pages or so on is basically... The, the core essential points of capital from Marx. And so he lays out like the most essential parts of capital for you with a critical introduction that get, sort of gets your feet wet in Marx's economic analysis. So that would be a great way to read capital without having to slog through the whole thing. Yeah. I'm actually kind of surprised you didn't mention the Grundris. Uh, oh, you know. the Grundris is amazing. I would say the, there's one particular part of the Grundrisse that is amazing that people should took, should definitely read is I think it's called the digression on technology where oh, yes, yes, yes. So I learned about this through a wonderful uh, uh, commentator uh, from Britain named Aaron Bastani, who's written a wonderful book called fully automated luxury communism. Yeah. Okay. And uh, 
the, 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 the digression on technology is amazing. Basically, Marx's central point is that you can build up production enough that there is enough surplus that allows us to live off of the surplus without too much labor. That with continuing automation, that we would be able to sort of free ourselves from the burdens of labor. And that's, that's always, I think that's a great point. Like, that's why the thing, I, I, I just read this the other night from another writer. He said, don't be mad at robots, be mad at capitalism. Right. Um, and, and I think that's really the, I think that's a great thing. So yeah, definitely the digression on technology. That's, that's a great thing you can read from the Grundrisse. Nice, nice. Well, thanks so much for your time and uh, spending the, your evening with me. And this is very different for Life After God. We haven't, we haven't done full-on Marxism or uh, you know, a critique of uh, Americans, American political economy. Um, so this is, this is helpful with a, a little bit of, um, you know, maybe controversial for some folks. I'm looking forward to hearing what folks have to say. And, um, and uh, you know, we have a lot at stake right now. And I think we've, we've had a lot at stake for a long time. And I think what's true now is that it's more obvious to more people. I think the, the middle class is beginning to feel what it's like to be in the lower class. And, and hence, you know, there's a greater outcry and that, that's good. A little solidarity would be, would be useful at this moment. So. Absolutely. As I would say, you know, uh, they always talk about the end of history. Well, history didn't end. We're living in it now. History is back. Yeah. And it's up to us to shape it the way we want to. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Justin, for being a, a guest on the show and uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you. It's been an immense pleasure. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.